Welcome. I am Sheila Murthy, President and Founder of the Murthy Law Firm. Thank you so much for joining us for today's discussion about the H-1B overview, registration, scap filing of petitions, uh, and connected topics. Joining me for today's call are two of my esteemed colleagues at the Murthy Law Firm, Kanya Sanders, who's a member and a senior attorney, and Kevin Andrews, who's been with us, I like to say, from the time he was a baby attorney to an extremely experienced attorney at this point. Uh, I think each of them has been with us, I don't know, 10, 15 years or longer. We have over half a century of immigration law just between the three of us and counting, maybe a lot more. I don't know if it's close to 100 years, but it might be, we might be getting up there, which is scary. But it is fabulous to have you. So with that, let us get started with just giving a brief overview of what is the H1 cap and how does it work. As most of us are aware, H1B is an annual limitation on the number of new H1B workers, which Congress, the U.S. Congress, has set at 65,000 each fiscal year. Out of this number, 58,500 are generally available since 6,500 are set aside for special programs for nationals of Chile and Singapore. There are an extra 20,000 slots for individuals who have completed a U.S. master's degree from an accredited U.S. university, nonprofit, or public university, right? Because we see that. Once the regular quota has been used, those with the U.S. master's degree or public university are eligible to be selected under this 20,000 master's quota. We have noticed that USCIS carefully scrutinizes whether the master's degree is from a for-profit or non-profit public university. If they approve the H-1B petition under the master's quota for an individual who has a U.S. master's degree from a for-profit, for example, in error, then those cases in the future could be scrutinized and denied, and then we find sometimes five, ten years later that the H-1 extension could be denied. It is extremely important that cases for individuals with a master's degree for for-profit universities, that they should be filed only under the regular quota and not under the master's quota. So when checking off the registration form and the paperwork, and for filing the H-1B petition, those are important issues to consider. Let's jump to the next question. We, what is the selection process that we expect for fiscal year 2025, which starts from October 1 of 2024, as we know, till September 30th of 2025? Kevin? Thanks, Sheila. So, yeah, the, the pre-selection process, it's, uh, it's been an interesting a decade because the, pro the the selection process that we now have started in 2020. And for fiscal year 2025, it's going to be much the same. There will be some changes next year. But for this year, petitioners like last year are going to register for a, an electronic uh, account. And this would be on the USCIS, my USCIS portal, in which they create an account to authorize someone to sign documents on their behalf. An attorney can be uh, uh, assigned to help with the preparation and submission of the registrations on behalf 
employer peti petitioner applicants. This year, the registration period begins noon, 12 p.m. noon Eastern Standard Time on March 6, 2024, and will end on noon Eastern Standard Time, March 22, 2024. So relatively small window, but the process is pretty straightforward. The petitioner is required to provide some basic information about the company and the beneficiary worker, the prospective worker. The petitioner is not required to provide information about the job, the salary requirements. That was the process pre-2020. But the petitioner is supposed to attest that there's a real bona fide job offer in connection with registration, not a, a made-up job, and that the petitioner doesn't tend to file the H-1B petition for the individual. There's been controversy with this aspect over the last couple of years. Um, further, the, the petitioner needs to attest that they have not worked with or agreed to work with any other registrant, petitioner agent, individual, or entity to submit multiple registrations to unfairly increase the chances of selection. That's kind of what we saw in the last couple of years. So I think typically USCIS, I mean, it, uh, in a booming economic period, something like 400,000 applicants for, you know, 85,000 numbers w would be common. But last year, they got something like 787,000 applications, uh, registrant applications, and the government has cracked down on that. So I think we're going to see a significant drawback in the fraud, which probably translates to, you know, an increase in the supply and possibly a better selection rate. The beneficiary is also required to have an unexpired valid passport or travel document at the time of registration. The same passport must be used by any company registering the beneficiary, and the beneficiary must use that same passport to apply for a visa if they are picked in the lottery. Also, the fee this year remains at a $10 registration fee. Thank you, Kevin. So, okay, so then to proceed with the registration process. If the registration is selected, um, you have a 90-day period to file the H-1B petition. USCIS generally gives uh, the time, the date that the petition has to be filed in the selection notice that is sent out uh, you know, when the beneficiary is selected. And the, the selection notice will also say whether the beneficiary was selected in a uh, regular cap or the master's cap. There are a couple of critical changes in the selection process this year. First of all, the uh, employer is required to create an organizational account and um, create a group account with an administrator named who will be responsible for signing the document, even if they have an attorney uh, who is working with them to help with the preparation, the employer still have to create an organizational account and have an administrator. Another critical change this year is that USCIS will select from the beneficiaries that are registered rather than company registration, which means the beneficiary will be selected only once. Even if multiple companies submit separate registrations on behalf of that beneficiary, if the beneficiary is selected, then all the companies that file for that beneficiary and file petitions for that beneficiary, either one or all of them can file. So USCIS will notify all the companies that filed on behalf of that beneficiary. 
So this way, uh, USCIS hopes to prevent the beneficiary being selected multiple times because of multiple registrations. In the past three years, USCIS conducted the lottery during the last week in March and provided an initial 90-day period from April 1 to June 30th to submit the H-1B petitions. After the initial 90-day filing period, if USCIS has not received enough petitions to meet the cap, they will conduct another lottery among the initial registrations and then announce another 90-day period to file those selected in the second uh, pick. The employer can um, file up to 250 beneficiaries um, at one time and pay the registration fee for the total number of beneficiaries if they are being registered at one time, but they cannot so the 250 is the, the limit. Please keep in mind that petitioner may only submit one registration per beneficiary. If a petitioner submits more than one registration for the same beneficiary, USCIS will invalidate all the registrations submitted for that beneficiary by that employer. Last year, USCIS added a duplicate checker functionality to the electronic registration process. So before you submit the registration, you can check whether the company has already submitted the registration for any of the beneficiaries included in the draft submission for that same fiscal year. But keep in mind, using this check does not guarantee that you will not submit a duplicate. This check will compare the beneficiaries listed in the draft with any registrations that company has already submitted during this registration period. But it will not check for duplicates within, within the draft or between drafts. So you need to be you know, very careful doing self-check to make sure you're not submitting the same beneficiary more than one. Thank you, Kevin and Kanye. Our next question is, so who is subject to the H-1B cap? Well, the people who are going to be counted or being subject to the H-1 cap are the following. A beneficiary employee who has never had a prior H-1B would generally be subject to the cap. A person who was counted against the cap in the past but has been outside the U.S. for at least one continuous year that person may have a choice either to be counted against the cap to receive the full six-year period in H-1B status, or the person may choose to use the remainder of six years from the prior H-1B status. Of course, this does not include those who have filed the PERM or I-140 petition and are eligible for the one-year or three-year H-1B extensions of SAS status because those are then pretty much able to keep renewing it in three-year increments if the priority date is not current. Those who are, again, we're talking about those subject to the H-1 cap are physicians who have obtained the J-1 waivers through the Conrad and IGA programs are actually cap exempt, so we don't have to worry about taking any cap numbers for those jobs, as are some employers who are cap exempt. So I know we are asking who is subject to the cap, but we're also talking about who is exempt from the cap here, right? 
So this includes employment at and by universities and their nonprofit affiliates, as well as nonprofit and government research organizations. It is important to analyze and discuss this with your counsel or attorney or law firm to figure out and determine if the employer is gap exempt. Uh, we have, for example, seen RFEs, Notice of Intentions to Deny and Denials on this specific issue, so it's very important to understand and analyze and see if you're making the argument how to present the case. The next issue that we want to touch upon is what is the criteria or the criteria requirements to qualify for an H-1B petition and status? Let me invite you, Kevin, to answer. Generally, an H-1B specialty occupation is defined as a job that requires a bachelor's degree or higher in a or the equivalent, sorry, in a specific field of study. So a job that would require a bachelor's degree in a variety of unrelated fields of study is not going to work. Um, that, that's a thing that often comes up for folks like engineering can be a variety different of different types of subspecialties, and so the specific field should be mentioned, for example. And the foreign national candidate has to possess the required education at the time that the H-1B petition is filed, not at the time of registration. So if somebody's finishing up school in March, April, doesn't graduate until the summer, that's still a potentially doable H-1B candidate. The fact that the beneficiary has a bachelor's degree by itself does not make the position a specialty occupation. Like I said, if it's not, if it's not in a directly related uh, field of study to the occupation, that's not going to work. If the, uh, I'm sorry, USCIS has also highly scrutinized education, a combination of education plus experience evaluations. So it is possible to use a combination of maybe unrelated education but directly related experience to qualify for the position, but that needs to be documented with an evaluation from a college professor who is authorized to grant college credit in exchange for experience at a university where they, where they would work. If the beneficiary does not have the actual physical diploma at the time of the filing, they would need to get a letter from the school's registrar or dean verifying that they've completed all the requirements for the degree and are just waiting for the physical diploma. So these are the basic requirements to qualify for an H-1B specialty occupation. Okay, so I'm going to talk about what is required to qualify for the master's cap, okay? As stated, there are 20,000 extra slots for individuals who have completed a master's degree from a U.S. nonprofit or public university. To qualify for the master's cap, one must have completed a master's degree or higher, is actually the advanced degree cap, from a qualifying U.S. school. The school must be properly accredited by a nationally recognized accrediting agency or association. Pre-accreditation status is also acceptable. Additionally, the school must be a public or private nonprofit institution. So for-profit universities, if you get a master's degree from a for-profit university, that master's degree does not qualify you for the master's cap. The degree 
will be awarded if the degree will be awarded after the registration period has closed but within the 90-day filing period the registration can still be submitted under the master's cap so you don't have to have the master's cap prior to submitting the registration as long as you have the master's degree or or a phd degree from a uh, qualifying university as long as you get it before the petition is filed, which means it's before the, the 90 days are up and you have sufficient time to file the petition, that is sufficient. In fact, the preamble to the final rule that created the registration system, the USCIS did note that the final rule does not alter the general requirement for establishing eligibility at the time the petition is filed. So eligibility for H-1B classification does not need to be demonstrated at the time a registration is submitted. USCIS confirmed this fact in a February 11, 2020 webinar. So as long as the beneficiary completes all of the degree requirements before the petition is filed, the beneficiary may qualify for either the master's or the regular cap, again, the advanced degree or the regular cap. Given that the 90-day filing window for the vast majority of registration selected likely will start on April 1, 2024, H-1B candidates expected to graduate before the end of June 2024 can likely use those degrees to qualify. Thank you for that answer. The next question that we want to touch upon is, Will the employee beneficiary be able to change status within the U.S. itself to H-1B? And, of course, in this example, if the OPT, the F-1 optional practical training, let's say is expiring sometime between April and October 1st and September 30th slash October 1st. Generally, the beneficiary is able to file a change of status within the United States to H-1B if the petition requests an October 1st start date and if the person is in a valid non-immigrant status, which the person will continue to maintain until September 30th of this year, of 2024, right? The other issue is... If the beneficiary is in F1 status, the situation is slightly different. If the student's F1 status or the optional practical training ends prior to September 30th, then the candidate may still be eligible for what's referred to as the automatic cap-gap extension until September 30th, assuming that the following four conditions have been met. What are the conditions? One, a petition is filed before the expiration of the OPT or the end of the grace period. Second, a change of status is requested on the H-1 petition. Third, an October 1st start date is requested. And fourth, the case obviously is eventually approved. It's important to remember that registration for the lottery does not provide any cap-gap benefits. A person can only benefit from CAP-GAP if the registration is actually selected and the CAP-GAP H-1 petition is filed according to the normal existing CAP-GAP rules. To be eligible for CAP-GAP under the registration process, 
a student selected in the registration whose F1 status or OPT is ending during that 90-day period prior to filing the H1 CAP petition must file the H1 petition before the end of the status or OPT regardless of when the 90-day period ends. So even if you have the entire month of April, May, and June, you can't wait till June 30th if your status is expiring, let's say, in April or May, right? For these situations, it is important to prepare the H-1 petition as early as possible to ensure eligibility for CAP-CAP. There are several steps, as we know, involved in preparing the H-1 petition, including the preparation of the Labor Condition Application, or LCA, for the H-1. Historically, there have been delays and technical glitches of various kinds with the Department of Labor's flag system for processing the LCA. So the later a case is actually started, the more likely that the employer and employee could run the risk of not getting the LCA done in time to file the CAP subject petition before the end of the person's F1 status or OPT. The final point to make on this subject is that the CAP-CAP extension starts when the student's current period of F1 status ends, regardless of whether the student is in OPT at that time. If the student is in OPT at the time of filing, then OPT work authorization may be extended until September 30th. If the student is not in OPT or if the petition is filed during the 60-day grace period, the student is allowed to simply remain in the U.S until October 1st, but cannot legally start working. Also, if the petition is denied or revoked, the the CAP-GAP extension will also terminate. If the petition is still pending after September 30, the student's in a period of authorized stay, but they don't have permission to work after September 30. So again, CAP-GAP work authorization ends with the 30th of September. A petition could also be rejected in the lottery or due to some kind of defect, the petition that USCIS could not accept it for for processing. In order to obtain proof of the CAP-GAP extension, this is the student's responsibility. They need to contact the school international student office, the DSO, to request an updated I-20. CVIS strongly recommends that students do not travel outside of the U.S. during this CAP-GAP extension period. USCIS will also consider the change of status request, the change from F1 to H1, is abandoned if the beneficiary leaves the U.S. while that petition is pending. If the student leaves the U.S. during their cap gap while the H1 petition is pending, they, they would most likely need to wait to return after the H1B petition is approved and they've gotten the H1B visa stamp from their, the consulate or embassy in their home country and can only begin employment anytime on or after H, uh, October 1st. If the beneficiary is not in F1 status, their current status ends prior to October 1st and they cannot maintain status until September 30th, they have no choice but to uh, change status to H1 uh, to not, not be able to change status in the H-1. They have no choice but to leave for consular processing or visa stamping. An H-1B petition approved for consular processing does not allow the beneficiary to work in the U.S. They need to activate that by leaving to apply for the visa stamp. And that means that the beneficiary 
would need to leave before their current status ends to, you know, to comply with immigration law. Any issues regarding change of status in the U.S., as, as you can imagine from what we've mentioned here, are complex, and it's worth discussing it with an attorney if you have a specific situation that arises. Thank you. What are the fees for an H-1B cap case? So the cap case or H-1B cases, USCIS is increasing the fees starting from April 1st, okay? So the 460 base filing fee is now available only for companies with 25 or fewer full-time equivalent employees. For companies with more than 25 employees, the fee is going up to $780. In addition to the base filing fee, there's a $500 anti-fraud fee, strongly recommended that it be paid by employer. Then you have the $750 and $1,500 training fee, the higher fee to be paid by employers with 25 or higher, more than 25 employees at a lower fee for 25 or fewer employees. There is also a $4,000 border protection fee, which also must be paid by employers. If the employer has 50 or more employees and more than 50% of employees on H-1B, and or L1A, L1B combined, they are required to pay the $4,000 voter protection fee. Employees will be exempt from some of the above fees when filing subsequent H1B extensions with the same employee. But if, you're, this is, if it's a cap case, then you will not be uh, exempt from it because this will be the first petition you will be filing for the employee. There's an optional premium processing fee which is going up on February 26th, which is 2805 starting from February 26th, so it will apply to the H1B cap cases. Thank you for that answer. Next question to discuss are what are some of the most common issues encountered with H-1 petitions? What we are finding is the main issues that we get requests for evidence that we see during consultations and otherwise are lack of specialty occupation, does the beneficiary qualify for the job, has the beneficiary maintained a valid non-immigrant status in the U.S. in order to be able to obtain the change of status or the extension of status within the U.S. and not have to do the consular processing abroad. So with that, the first item, which is specialty occupation, you really come back to the issue of field of study. Is the work the directly connected with the education? Is the education connected with the work? How are the two interrelated? Those sorts of issues are touched upon, right? So choosing the correct SOC code, getting the approval rate for the correct wage level. So you have all of the issues that we are seeing where there's a risk if it does not perfectly coincide and match. Then you have issues pertaining to the qualifications of the beneficiary, you know, the education, the credentials, the work experience, the level of work, again, the wage level. 
right? And as we discussed um, and have talked about, a person who has only experience and not the requisite, for example, four-year bachelor's degree or its equivalent runs the risk of getting the H1 petition denial because there are concerns with experience-based evaluations compared with direct education. And the third item, which is the maintenance of status, there's all kinds of red flags where you, of course, have to show you're maintaining your status, whether it's F1 or B2 or H4, when you're switch filing the change to H1B. But a person that uses a day one CPT and STEM OPT at third-party work locations, sometimes that could be a red flag for a request for evidence or a possible denial of the petition. Um, again, we keep seeing these issues. They keep changing all the time. Um, during certain administrations, we have seen a plethora of RFEs and notice of intentions to deny. Uh, under the current Biden administration, we have seen a lower number of RFEs, lower number of denials. However, there is definitely a great amount of scrutiny where there is either maintenance of status, particular concern where students are engaging in day one CPD or working without authorization, um, scrutinizing specialty occupation, does the job really require the specialty occupation? And obviously, again, each of these issues are pretty complicated and it would behoove the employer and the employee to consult with counsel. And if you don't have a counsel, of course, you're certainly welcome to contact the Murthy Law Firm to guide you and help you in addressing these concerns, RFEs, or notes of intentions to deny or revoke. With that, I want to thank each of you for taking time to attend today's teleconference. I want to thank Kanya Sanders and Kevin Andrews for joining the panel discussion. I want to thank you for um, making time to understand the ever-changing nuances and issues dealing with immigration. On behalf of myself, Sheila Murthy, Kevin Andrews, Kanya Sanders, and the entire Murthy Law Firm team, we thank you for joining us for today's teleconference to understand the issues commonly encountered with H-1B petitions, and we look forward to helping you, whether you're an employer or the employee going through the process, to use the experienced and knowledgeable lawyers and the legal team at the Murthy Law Firm. Thank you very much. Have a good afternoon.